I have a friend from college who in recent years, she really uh, questioned a lot of things. There were a lot of things that had happened in her life. It's somebody that I really like, somebody that I respect, somebody who is super motivated. She's amazing, very smart, and she has slowly kind of drifted away from her faith in Jesus. Used to be somebody who would call herself a Christian, and now she would say, I'm not a Christian anymore. And uh, it's been really hard. We have a lot of really frank conversations, and uh, she's still somebody that I learn a lot from. She thinks cool things, uh, but it's been, uh, it's been a, a whole journey for her and uh, with others around her. And you might know somebody or, uh, who has gone through that kind of a personal earthquake, or maybe you've had those kind of big questions in your own faith. Uh, you maybe know people who have either had big questions or even left their faith altogether. And perhaps even some of your most fervent prayers are for people regarding the status of their faith and, and for them to stick with it or uh, for them to get through some season. The reality is we are living in an increasingly secular culture. Uh, the facts are that there are fewer people going to church than in previous years, and the percentage actually drops with each generation. Uh, there has been a rise of people who call themselves the nuns. So people who, when you ask them what their religious affiliation is, they check none. So that has been higher than before. I think previously, people who didn't go to church or they kind of mostly, for, in a functional sense, weren't really Christians. They still would have checked Christian, but that's, that's a whole different conversation. But a less statistically based fact, I will say, is depending on where you are, I would say that the younger you are, the more pressure there is to, from your peers against faith in general. And so the median, median age in the U.S. right now is 39. So if you are below that, that like not me, um, then, then, there, uh, then there is more pressure, I think, and it, it encourages us to, to pray for and for us to strengthen our young people. So you might be wondering, given these kinds of pressures, where can we turn to find some help to know what we should do? And whatever you have in your head about where we should turn, I'm guessing the answer that you had was not, let's look at the Old Testament. But that is what we're going to do. Because during the time that the book of Jeremiah was written, a certain percentage of people who were there were sent into exile, were sent away from their country into Babylon. They had been conquered by the Babylonian Empire, and part of the Babylonians' intent was for all these conquered lands to become really Babylonian. So they, wanted, they took a bunch of people and moved them to Babylon itself to the headquarters, and, and their intent was to take some of these key leaders and the artisans and some of the skilled people, all the big brains of the country, all the movers and shakers, to take them to Babylon and to make them as Babylonian as possible so that there would be a certain unity, a hegemony of their empire. And so they wanted to use all of their skills for the glory of Babylon. So you might not think immediately of the Old Testament to talk about issues of uh, culture and secularization, but what we have in the book of Jeremiah is actually a really great example of people who experienced what it's like to be a minority faith in a wider culture that doesn't share their faith, 
and with all the corresponding pressure to conform to a secular or a very different religious society than what they were in. And embedded in the middle of the text of the book of Jeremiah is a letter that was written by the prophet Jeremiah, God told him to do this, and sent to these exiles who are off, maybe about 3,000 or so people who were taken to Babylon in exile after Jerusalem and Judea had been conquered and invaded and all that. So we're going to look at this letter today, and I think it's going to have some helpful information for us about how we can live faithfully in an increasingly secular culture. Let's read that. So this is Jeremiah 29. So if you want to flip in your Bible, you can. You can open your app. I'm I'm going to be reading this actually in the New Living Translation, which is the the translation. I I normally preach out of NIV, just so you know. Um, But during this time when we're doing Immerse, when we're reading through the prophets, I've been uh, doing it in that version, the NLT. It's a little easier um, to read. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This was after King Jehoiachin, the queen mother, the court officials, and other officials of Judah, and all the craftsmen and artisans had been deported from Jerusalem. He sent the letter with Elash, son of Shapan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, when they went to Babylon as King Zedekiah's ambassadors to Nebuchadnezzar. So there were people who were going that way already, and he put another letter in with it, their letter bag. And this is what Jeremiah's letter said. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. But this is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you, and I will bring you home again to your own land. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I thought this week about this one guy, Jeremiah, and writing this letter, and it's, it's stuck through the centuries to us here. I pray that you will help us to understand what you were saying to these people at that time and, and what that still might mean for our lives today. Give us courage to be people who, who live into the new creation in our world today. We pray in your name. Amen. Like I mentioned, we are in a a message series right now where we're taking a whirlwind tour, looking at the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament. And the first thing that you notice if you are reading along with us is that those prophetic books are difficult for modern readers to connect with or to understand uh, 
for a lot of reasons. The style is very different, and some of the themes and some of the place names even are a little bit hard for us. So if you are reading with, along with us and you're having some trouble, I want to tell you that's okay. Hang in there. The idea isn't to understand every little bit of what you're reading, but to immerse ourselves in the text and understand some of the bigger story that's going on. And the idea is that during, uh, on Sundays, we're going to look in, in the Sunday message at one text and look a little bit more deeply and understand that one a bit better and apply it to our lives. So how can we live faithfully in an increasingly secular culture? Uh, Jeremiah 29 is going to tell us a couple, to do a couple things. We need to remember our true citizenship and we need to embrace our vocation. So the first one is, no, no, back up, back up, back up, back up. Okay, so uh, we need to remember our true citizenship, first of all. So Jeremiah is telling them, yes, they are in Babylon, but they are going to come back. Why? Because they belong to the Lord. And, and it's hard for us here in America, safe in the early part of the 21st century right now, to understand or imagine what a devastating event this would have been to have their country invaded, to have a group of people taken off into exile. And, and there are people in our community now, and maybe even people in our church family, who have fled from oppressive regimes, who have uh, left poverty or tried to escape war in order to come here. But the context of this passage that we read was not about people who were seeking more opportunities and going someplace for that, but they were captured and taken by force to another place. And it must have been confusing and painful and demoralizing. So this outside force came in and interrupted their lives. And they were taken from their homes and planted in a foreign place. And they had to be wondering, what does this all mean? And I think that they would have been tempted to have a lot of false hope or even to give in to despair. They, they, had, they had been wondering what God might be doing with them. They, they had false hope, we know that, because in that passage it says that, that there had been these false prophets, and, and he explains a bit more afterwards that they were telling the people what they wanted to hear. He was, they were telling people, hey, listen, this is just for a minute. This isn't going to last very long. Uh, this is going to be over right away. Don't worry. The other temptation would be to give yourself up to despair. Like, what, why go on living? Why should we do this? God sent us away because of our disobedience. Why would God still want us? So those are the two temptations that they have. But what is beautiful is that God tells them super clearly that he is invested in them. Look at how relational verses 10 to 14 are. Uh, it, it's super relational. This is what the Lord says. You'll be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you the good things I have promised. I will bring you home again, for I know the plans I have for you. So he's, he says, I'm coming for you. I'm, I haven't given up on you. Uh, if you're going to pray, I will listen. Because previously he had been saying, hey, if you're praying, I'm not listening because you guys are so off base. So there's this repetition, this I I, I, I know the plans I have for you. God is saying to, them, saying to them, I am invested in you. I'm connected in this relationship with you. And, and their being in exile wasn't a sign that God was done with them. It was a wake-up call and a pretty terrible one for them, but the idea wasn't to be done with them forever. God hasn't 
given up on them. And because he hasn't given up on them, they needed to have their vision on the day that God was going to bring them back to their land. And the news that they get is that there is a time period, a set time for their captivity. Uh, it's not going to be over very quickly, uh, but it's not going to be over for, it's not going to be for forever. They're citizens of another place, and they need to live like foreigners in Babylon, to not actually become Babylonians. So while they're there in Babylon, they need to remember their true citizenship. In the rapid secularization of our culture, you might kind of feel like uh, you have kind of quickly moved to a different place. Uh, it can feel a bit like that. You might feel like things were going along acceptably smoothly, I guess, in your life, and then wham, all of a sudden, this new reality arrives, and your life kind of seems like your former life is over there, and now your new life is over here, and, and you've been sent into this place, and you've kind of been exiled from a previous life. And you might be tempted to either simply complain, give up, or dream that this thing's going to blow over in a minute, and you're just going to go back to the way things were. And that's what, that's what they were tempted to do, and that's what they, they wanted to believe because the, these other false prophets were telling them that. But the reality is I think we need to grieve what has been lost and not think of quick fixes, not go to despair. I think that there are some benefits as well, and it might surprise you to hear me say that, though. One of the positives of living in a more secular culture is that we are less likely to confuse our citizenships. Uh, I have heard from church planters that one of the hardest places for people to plant a church and to see people come to faith in Jesus is actually in the Bible Belt. That it's really hard because people think, hey, I'm, I'm already a Christian. What do I need to know about that? They, they assume that they're followers of Jesus just by their birth. And they, they have never taken a step to have Jesus, like Christ actually in them. So it's hard to convince them of that. So for us, when, when we, when we are, see a, the differences in our culture, a lot of times we are very clear. We are citizens of God. We belong to Jesus. And there's a certain amount of clarity that can come with that. The first thing that we're surprised is that we need to see ourselves clearly. We need to see that our citizenship is in heaven. And, and like Jeremiah's exiles in a foreign land, you and I, we have a different citizenship. We belong to Jesus. That's our, that is our primary passport. Over the vacation, I got to go to Mexico, got to show my passport a few times, even made a quick trip up when I was up north. We went to Canada, so we hit all north, most of North America there. That was good. But I had to show my passport a few times. And, I, and you know what? It's great to be back in the U.S. I'm a proud American. But you know, my true citizenship, my true passport is actually in heaven. I belong to Jesus. And in fact, the Apostle Peter tells us we should purposely remind ourselves that we are foreigners. First uh, Peter 2, 11 to 12 says this, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will, honor, they will give honor to God when he judges the world. So Peter, he actually takes up this idea of you should be foreigners, you should be citizens of another place. He says we should purposely think of ourselves as foreigners wherever we are, even if you're in the city where you were born. You should purposely think of yourself as a foreigner to emphasize our citizenship in heaven. 
All right, so the second thing. So we need to remember our citizenship. The second thing is that we need to embrace our vocation as people who are then sent into this community. So as, as foreigners in Babylon, we might think that God would tell them, hey, why don't you keep your distance? So you can be there, but you know, stay separate. Don't, don't get involved with the community around you. But instead, he says, you need to invest fully in your community. So you need to feel like you're separate, but you need to be engaged. He says this, uh, this is verse 5. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. So he says two bits in there. He says we're supposed to work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you. God actually did it. So he says, hey, make plans. Do practical things in your daily life to bring the peace and prosperity of this city in their daily jobs, in their daily life, among their neighbors, using their skills, using their uh, everything that's in them to bring this peace and prosperity. And the Lord told these exiles who were sent to a city that they hated, they sent to their enemy, to do this. And he says, I want you to work and pray for the people who just conquered you. So if God is telling his people to do that for Babylon, I think we can do it for Simi Valley. A lot of, a lot of you chose to come here, right? They, like you, so if, you're, if you're younger, your parents chose, it wasn't your choice, you can make another choice for yourself later. But you chose to be here. So we need to do this for our city. But there is a wider application even that we can understand, where has God sent us? I think it includes not just our city, but our region, our, our spheres of influence in our jobs, in our social clubs, in our families, in our webs of friendship. These are all places where God has sent us. And he says, we should also pray to the Lord for these things. And, and somehow that kind of hits me a little bit differently. I don't know why. Uh, we're, we're using our strength to benefit other people, even, even people that we disagree with. We're trying to help them. But, but somehow, even more, we're asking God, we're actually praying, asking God to give that peace and prosperity to people around us, for, for God to bless people in our social spheres here in Simi Valley. I want to say, and doing that for people we like and doing that for people we don't like. So as we think about this, embracing this vocation, we have this vaca vocation that we're supposed to have, a vocation to, to work and to pray for these communities that we have. And as I say that, you might have a couple of objections in your mind. Uh, the first one, you might be thinking, hey, this doesn't apply to me because I'm only in this situation for a short period of time. Uh, you know that you're only going to be in town for six months. Uh, you are only in that job you have temporarily. Or maybe you're only going to be deployed for so long. Uh, or, hey, your physical therapy is only set for three months. I'm only going to be here for a little bit. And in those situations, our temptation is to hang back and think, hey, you know what? This time is temporary, so I, I don't really actually need to do this stuff. I, I don't need to work and pray for this group. I, don't need to, I can just hang back. And I understand that. But what Jeremiah says would challenge that. Because he says, you were there temporarily. So work. So he knows that it's a temporary gig. But so work. 
And the reality is that, that a lot of us can have a very significant impact even in a short period of time in a place. Uh, she's not here. I'm going to pick on her. Uh, there was a woman who was a part of our church for a short period of time named Deanna. And she wondered if she was going to be able to stay. She wanted uh, a situation made it so that she couldn't stay. She was here for maybe about three months. And in those three months, I want to tell you, she's, she came up to me. She said, Kurt, I have, God has given me the gift of making lists. How can you use me? Said, that we can use. And do you know that Deanna ended up helping us to organize some of our small groups? And out of the things that she did, we started three new small groups in our church. So she directly helped us to start three small groups. She was here for three months, and her gift was making lists, right? So I don't know what your gift is, but you, we can use our gifts for the kingdom. And she, I, I'm so thankful for her. She made such a positive impact, even in the short period of time that she was here. You maybe have a gift that you can help us get organized. Maybe you have some other thing. But I want to encourage you, even if you're there for a short period of time, you can have an impact. Another objection that we might have is that maybe you never wanted to be in this situation or with these people in the first place. So you never asked to be a special needs parent. Uh, You never wanted your parents to move to Simi Valley. Uh, Or you know what? You never chose to be a neighbor to a three or four story apartment complex going up on Topo and Alamo. But you know, how, how is God, if you live in this neighborhood, how is God calling for you to work and to pray for the peace and prosperity of your neighborhood? I've started to wonder, you know, I think we should probably put on a barbecue for them to welcome them to the neighborhood. And, um, and, and like, really, for real. So how, how should we do that? In six months, maybe when they start having people move in, how can we be welcoming to actually physically work and pray for people to have peace and prosperity right here in our neighborhood? Because you had no choice that it went in. You might have voted against it if you could. I don't know, whatever. But it's here. So what are you going to do? And just like the exiles, they, they're there. What are they going to do? They need to, pre- they need to work and pray. Another situation maybe you didn't choose to get into, you might be a little bit surprised that you got old. (laughs) I know, you, right? How did this happen to such a great person as you? You were young for so long and then it snuck up on you. How does this happen? What would it mean for you to be an agent of peace and prosperity in your life stage. And I can tell you that I've actually been, I've been praying for two or three people who would lead some kind of a, uh, a movement to engage people who are retired, 65 and above, whatever age you want to pick. Somebody older than you. Uh, pick somebody older than you. 75 and older, 85 and older, 95 and older, yeah, whatever. Um, to something, somebody who can help build strong relational networks, to have something spiritual and social, something that would engage people in faith. Now, you know, we have a youth group, and the youth group does fun games. They have something to engage their spirit, to engage them socially. They play a lot of fun. Why can't we have something like that for people who are retired? You might play a little less Capture the Flag. But maybe not. Why can't there be something like that? And I, I want to encourage you. What would it mean for you? Because that's our community. And maybe you didn't think you chose to get in that, but that's, these are your people. So what does it mean 
for me and for you, to in the community of people who are a bit like me, where I live, in my job, in, in the situation I have, in the, it, I have kids now, I, ha- I have kids that moved out, I have lost a loved one, whatever our community is, how can we pray and work for the peace and prosperity of that group? And maybe it's not for us to wait for somebody else to do it. Maybe God is calling for you to grow in your leadership, to become the leader that God has made you to be, to exercise those leadership gifts in a small way or in a big way. Maybe it's just making lists. But it's a good, you can be the catalyst for those things. So how can you be the hands and feet of Jesus in your particular niche in society, in your school, in your workplace? How can you be a prayer warrior for your block, for the people who are in your situation? Because in action and prayer, we're supposed to seek the peace of the place where we've been sent. He says the city because they're in Babylon and they felt like that was a bad place to be. But we, all this is key for us in living in our wider society that we will be invested. We feel, we know that we're citizens of somewhere else, but we're completely invested in our society. And, And I think those two big steps are going to be a witness to the Lord because they solve a couple of the big problems that plague the church today, problems that I think allow secular people to dismiss Christianity out of hand, that cause a lot of us to ask big questions and be troubled in our faith. And the problems that we have are cynicism and fear. And on the one hand, we have the cynics. Uh, A cynic believes that all of our actions are meaningless. Why should I do it? The only meaning we have is the meaning that we make ourselves in the world. And you can probably easily identify the kind of cynicism that we do see in our wider society, the rejection of all moral or religious principles, and that our cultural soup today is kind of salted a bit with that kind of nihilistic view, this cynicism in our world. But that nihilism and cynicism show up in our church as well. The wider church and in my own heart. It shows itself up in, in a lot of funny ways, a broken view of creation. Uh, Christians will, will twist our theology to back that up. We say, hey, you know, God's going to make a new creation. It doesn't matter what we do with the world. But we have been called by God to use our gifts, to use our strength, to use our talents today to be stewards of our creation. It could show up in our witness. Hey, you know what? If God is the one who's in control, then God's going to bring people to himself. It doesn't matter what I do. I don't have any responsibility to try to convince other people to follow Jesus. I feel like that kind of cynicism, it just gives up on our community, but that's not what we're told to do in Jeremiah. It says we need to engage. And we can't give in to that kind of cynicism because when we do that, it robs us of our mandate to be people who use our gifts to be agents of the new creation in our world. We're supposed to be working and praying for the peace and prosperity of our world including our country, our state, our city, and we need to embrace that vocation. That's the cynicism. And I feel like embracing our vocation fights that cynicism. But the other thing that we have is this fear. There are people who work really hard in this world, um, but they act like everything depends on their efforts. If they don't do this thing, then it's all going to fall apart. And the symptoms of that is that we try to fix all of the problems of the world by ourselves, by our actions. And and I want to say, politically, that's a problem for people on the left as far as the right. It's the same. 
They think that if they don't do something, the world's going to fall apart, and it's all on them to fix everything. So everything depends on the next five minutes right now, as if God isn't even there. But we're supposed to be people who pray and expect God to act. So we have to keep a proper distance in our heart as far as knowing where our true citizenship is, that our true citizenship is in heaven. And I think that that can combat some of the fear that we have. So we want to fight the cynicism, and we can fight the fear. Hear me, I, I say we should be engaged. Maybe you need to be a poll observer, but we shouldn't give in to fear. And look at how these threads come together in verse 11 in Jeremiah. The opposite of cynicism is hope. Believing that there's purpose and there's meaning and there's true justice in the world. And the opposite of fear is, is believing that God has a future, that we, we aren't just trapped and frustrated. God has promised us a future. And so not cynicism, but hope. And not fear, but a future. And if you came to worship today knowing any verse anywhere from Jeremiah, I'm guessing it's Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for your good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. It combats those two things. These words were spoken to people who were probably on the edge of despair, thinking that the world had ended because they had been sent to exile. And these were meant to be an encouragement for them. They had been defeated. They had no power to change their situation. They needed God's outside intervention to change things. And, and God did give them this hope and a future. It was a little bit more delayed than what they wanted, I think. But it, and it was an action that was completely because of God's faithfulness, not because of theirs. If we've seen anything during our study of the book of prophets, we've seen that the people weren't faithful. In fact, God keeps admonishing them, saying, you are not sticking with me. But God does stick with them. It's God's action motivated by his own mercy and his own grace. He's the one that's committed to them. And the New Testament writers give us an even greater hope and a future. The return from exile was just a foretaste of this hope and future that Jeremiah is talking about. Because we're naturally powerless too. Even if we feel like we want to do God's will at times, we end up finding that we're just recapitulating the same story of Israel over and over again, that we fall short. We end up getting trapped in our own sin, and not, not just individual actions. I'm saying like a, a wider poisoning of the water in our world, and it makes us powerless. That's what, that's what Paul says. He says, Romans 5, 6, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So God, his project was never to make bad people good. In fact, until you understand that without Christ, you and I, we are as powerless as war prisoners, then we are going to have a stunted and superficial faith. We have to know how powerless we are. It's a stunted faith because we think that sin is just the bad things that we do instead of seeing it as this corruption of our souls and of the whole world, it minimizes the awesome victory of what Christ did on the cross. Because the, self, the Christian message is not a self-improvement plan. If you are in Christ, you are somebody who has been rescued. Colossians 1 says this, 
He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Christ, He isn't the cherry on top of an already pretty good life. The plan that God had from the beginning was that God was going to send Christ to deliver us from our sin, to to break the hold of sin in the world. I will come for you, God tells the exiles. And that is what God did for us in Christ. I will come for you to rescue you. And he does that because we, we are his people. He's come to redeem us and forgive us, and that is our true citizenship. So we can live like agents of another kingdom in our world, sent to be a blessing in the lives of the people around us, to live out this new creation now, wherever we might find ourselves, whether we like it or not. And that's our new vocation. So if you want to live faithfully in our world today, no matter how secular, if you move to some place where you are surrounded by people who believe very differently than you, the things we need to do, we need to remember our true citizenship. Because you are a stranger here. You kind of a little bit don't belong. This is not your home. Your citizenship is in heaven because you belong to Christ. Not just that you said a prayer, you belong to him. He rescued you, pulled you out of one kingdom and put you in another. Isn't that such an image that you'd see grabbing them from Babylon and bringing them back, bringing them from one kingdom to another? But we're also, we're not separate, we're invested. So we're going to embrace our vocation as people sent into our communities. We're going to work and pray for this place however long the Lord may have us here. So I'm wondering, where has God put you? What, what are those things? It might be a physical location, like your neighborhood. It might be a particular situation you were in. Where are some of those places that God has sent you? And so how are you going to use your gifts and your energy and your prayers for those places? So I'm wondering what's a concrete action you can do to work for the peace and prosperity of your surroundings. And I want to I have that be your ex, next step. What is one concrete action you can take to work for the peace and prosperity of your community? I want you to pray for it as well. First thing you got to do is figure out what community is you're talking about. <laughs> but what's something you need to do? Because I'll say our secular friends around, they complain. One of their, their right complaints is that too often Christians just kind of lob complaints from the sidelines like a grenade into the culture from behind a protective wall. But what if we as Simi Covenant, we start this thing along with other believers, that we want to be more invested in our community because of our faith in Christ. To live distinct lives, but to be invested as well. I think that that would be a wonderful way for us to engage our culture. I think that people would be happy for us to do that. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this passage that was, this letter that was sent to these exiles who must have felt lost, but you wanted to encourage them. And that encouragement was by your own presence. Thank you for your Holy Spirit in our lives. We belong to you. May we always know and remember what our true citizenship is. But I pray that we will embrace our new vocation as agents for that kingdom in a broken and needy world that needs you more than anything else. We pray in your name. Amen.